Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, business in the knowledge economy, sponsored by Sage, transforming the way people think and work so their organizations can thrive. I'm Ed Kless with my good friend and co-host Ron Baker. And folks, on today's show, we are pleased to have our interview with Patrick Reasonover. Hey, Ron, how's it going? It's going great, Ed. I can't wait for this. Yeah, innovation, a topic we love to talk about. And I think when tied to the regulation portion of what Patrick has to say, we're going to have a really interesting conversation. Let me quick read the bio and bring him on. Patrick Reasonover is lead producer on the movie They Say It Can't Be Done. He previously produced the award-winning feature-length documentary of Dogs and Men. And he is the co-creator and producer of an animated comedy web series entitled, uh, based on the New York Times bestselling book, The Politically Incorrect Guides. Also will be released or has been released so far in 2020 Uh, through his work with uh, corporate partners. Patrick has produced more than 300 animated documentary, virtual reality and narrative projects. Got a B.A. from Emory University in creative writing and philosophy. So welcome to the soul of enterprise, Patrick Reasonover. Thank you so much for having me, guys. I'm really excited to be here. Well, I first got introduced to you. One of your publicists, I guess, got in touch with me and we did an episode of the Sage Thought Leadership podcast together, which is about uh, about three months ago, I think, and talked for about 10 minutes. And I said, this is a really fascinating documentary. I got to got to get this guy on the soul of enterprise with. So I sent it over to Ron and he took a look at it and said, yeah, this is a, a great topic for us. So, uh, Patrick, I uh, Let's talk about the They Say It Can't Be Done. Talk a little bit about the, the film. It's not quite released yet, correct? It's, it's out. We Ron and I have been able to see it, but it's not officially released. Do I have that correct? Uh, no, it actually has oh. been released. It oh, okay. was released on uh, March 23rd for uh, rental and buy on all kind of major platforms. You can get it on Apple or YouTube or pretty much wherever you want to stream. Um, it is uh, rolling out internationally as well in Japan and uh, now I think in uh, Arabic uh, across the swath of those countries. So it just was released and we're okay. very excited to finally get it out there. <laughs> I bet you are. How, how, what's the uh, initial reaction so far? So good. Yeah. You know, I, we, I think that, uh, you know, whenever you make a documentary that is really about ideas, you know, it's not exactly about cats or, you know, Tiger King, uh, you know, uh, it's, a, it's a little bit heady, it takes a little bit of, uh, you know, effort to, to get into it. Um, but uh, yeah, we, uh, I think that when we, when we started, began work on the documentary and development, uh, we wanted to make something that really appealed to everyone, no matter what your background is. And so we started with global problems like global warming, ocean acidification, um, you know, like lack of protein, animal welfare, lack of access to high quality healthcare at like affordable costs, something that we all all have in common as challenges. And then we wanted to see if there were innovators out there who had solutions and um, whether they were operating in the market and they could do something at scale to solve these problems. And, and if they were not, then what was the barriers to entry? 
You know, what, we, what can we do to help empower these imaginative innovators to attack these problems and really solve them? And the film focuses on, I guess, four different companies or industries or, or problems that, that just is the alternative meat, the Center for Negative Carbon Emissions, uh, Regenerative Medicine, and the Catalina Sea Ranch. And the story then weaves together around what they propose as these innovative solutions, but then also goes back and forth with the regulations and the challenges that these folks face. And I think you've done a pretty fair job of, of showing both the pluses and the, and the minuses. I, I didn't find this to be hugely skewed one way or the other. Um, probably others might not think that. Maybe that's just confirming my biases, I suppose. It's very possible. But um, is that something you strive for, a real a, a balance? Because it comes across to me in the film anyway. Yeah. When we approach documentary film, uh, we are interested in the question. So I think you see in a lot of documentary films someone taking a perspective. And for them, it's all about balancing that perspective with other perspectives. But we really try to be open and curious for the audience because we are stewards for the audience in this quest for knowledge. And so for us, it's really about understanding. And so when it comes to balance, that's something that's very important because you don't achieve understanding without really getting a sense of the whole. And what I thought was really neat about it, you also had some experts, um, Alex Tarabach, Tom Bell, uh, Clark Neely, Adam Thier. Adam Thier has been a guest on the on the show already talking about permissionless innovation. Uh, and, but you also had folks who were regulators uh, on, on, who you interviewed as well. And I thought that was that was an interesting balance. T tell me a little bit about those conversations that you had with with those folks before we get into the the meat, if you will. A little foreshadowing there of, of the documentary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, well, there's a lot of meat there. Uh, so the one way to think about uh, these ideas is how they uh, flow through the vehicles that are people and personalities. And so you have, um, you know, uh, innovators and entrepreneurs or scholars who are working on innovative ideas that are going to be spun out of the university. And there's sort of a, you know, a personality, a way of looking at things a hierarchy of values there. And then you have regulators um, who are, you know, going to Washington, D.C. Uh, to do good. And uh, very often when we begin with a very ideological perspective, we sort of just look at one of these two groups as Mr. Bad Guy and the other one as Mr. Good Guy. And, uh, you know, in fact, uh, really, you have a lot of people following incentives. And in fact, uh, for innovation to operate, uh, there needs to be a regulatory structure. And so these two disparate personalities or warring parties in some framework actually really need to be collaborative with one another. And so when we talked to regulators, we did not find the story of the evil regulator who's just sitting up there in front of his computer trying to figure out all the ways that they can make the lives miserable of innovators. In fact, we found that a lot of times regulators are constrained by laws that are passed by Congress and signed by the executive um, in certain ways where they're not able to pivot, even if they see that there is a pivot. Um, we also see that due to the very nature of regulation, which was kind of conceived in this industrial revolution uh, type, you know, industrial factory economy, that, uh, that they're, really, they're really not incentivized to take risks along with the innovators. Uh, they're incentivized to have no risk. 
because if they approve a product and something bad happens, they're blamed. If they approve a product and nothing happens, they, you know, or something good happens, they get no credit. And so that's just really not uh, a viable system to get them the information that they need to make them effective collaborators with the innovators and, uh, you know, to, to, to really allow change at the pace of a digital economy. Yeah. One of our former guests, Steve Landsberg, suggested that the, F- the FDA be paid in, in pharmaceutical stock to, to, to counteract that problem. <laughs> yeah, the incentives really are the problem. I think that's what we found. It's a, when you can align incentives, a lot of these conflicts go away. Right. And I forget which economist might have even been Steve Lagberg. The two words that all economists agree on incentives matter. Everything else is commentary. Right. So <laughs> that's right. Very, very. <laughs> that's certainly what we have. Well, you know, and just a, a quick story. And we'll get it, get into the, some of the different, different um, uh, focus stories that you had in, in the documentary. But um, my son curiously is having a pizza party with his, his uh, friends tonight. They're coming over and they'll be ordering, uh, you know, I'm sure they'll be ordering cheese pizza and pepperoni pizza. And what I learned from your documentary is that cheese pizza, that's regulated by the Department of Agriculture. <laughs> pepperoni pizza, now that's regulated by the FDA. <laughs> and that's yeah. just a great example of, of the confusion and not through the regulator's fault per se, right? That's just the system that they were dealt, but they've got to square that circle in many cases. Right. Uh, yeah. I mean, that came from Dan Troy, who was a former uh, general counsel of the FDA, uh, <laughs> that, that bite. Uh, so right straight from the horse's mouth, as it were. Um, yeah, you wind up with these strange, confusing things. And uh, whenever you want to do something different uh, as, a, as an innovator, you know, like so one of the stories is um, on Just Meat uh, or Just Food, uh, and they are a company that, among many, that are using um, this uh, cell uh, technology to grow real meat. Uh, so it's actual meat. It's not beyond meat, pea protein. It's real meat uh, in the lab in a way that doesn't involve the killing or slaughter or pollution or need to feed through acres and acres and acres of farmland uh, animals. Um, and the kind of beauty of the technology is they can do it with Wagyu beef and they can do it with your plain old chicken nuggets. And it's uh, at the same cost. And so, you know, they ran into a scenario where are we cheese pizza or are we pepperoni pizza? And that may sound like a surmountable problem, but in fact, it kind of really isn't because the people who are regulating the cheese and the people who are regulating the pepperoni, they themselves don't know. So there's no answer (laughs) other than to wait. Right. And that, and that, that's brought up also in, in the uh, Catalina uh, uh, Sea Ranch problem, too, is when one other scene we'll talk to you about is when Tom Bell goes through all of the different orth, offshore regulations back and forth. And then, yeah, well, we, we can't figure out how to regulate it so you can't sell your product. Wait, what? <laughs> so really crazy stuff. Well, Patrick, we're up against our first break. This time is flying by as we knew it would. I uh, want to remind our listeners that they can contact Ron or me by sending an email to asktsoe at verisage. The website is The Soul of Enterprise, where you can see show notes as well as previews to upcoming shows. But right now, a word from our sponsor. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. 
Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. Have you ever listened to an advertisement for a book so many times that you question the existence of God? Me too. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I recorded the advertisement for Ron and Ed's book, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Blah, 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 Whatever. And four years later, we're all tired of it, especially me. But thankfully, there's a solution. For just $10 a month, you never have to hear my voice again. For a commercial-free version of The Soul of Enterprise, go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe now. We don't follow, we lead. Join us, the Voice America Influencers Channel. tuned into the soul of enterprise with ron baker and ed class to find out more about our show visit us on the web at the soul of you can also chat with us on twitter using hashtag ask tsoe now back to the soul of enterprise well welcome back everybody we're here with patrick reason over the producer of they say it can't be done and patrick it's great that you have a degree in philosophy because i want to ask you a big question the documentary opens by saying, you know, throughout history, the idea that God would bring the world to an end. But then after Hiroshima, man figured out that we might be able to do this ourselves. Why is it that doomsayers always underestimate the human ingenuity of man? That is a big question. <laughs> um, I think, you know, really, we have a lot of great stuff in the documentary. You'll see the technology on meat, like I mentioned, you'll see them the, the ability to make 3D printed organs that are exactly like your organs and put them in you. You see technologies that could, you know, end global warming, uh, you know, heal the seas. But at the end of the day, uh, what you have in innovation and regulation is this deep human conflict between optimism and pessimism. And so when we titled the film, they say it can't be done, you might knee-jerk think that they is the regulator, but actually they is you, you know, because in a certain sense, you have a pessimism about the future. You have a fear of change. You know, it's very natural and human, and we all experience it. At the same time, we experience marvel at the new thing and, uh, and how it can change our lives. And so I think, you know, it's not a question of picking one over the other because both may serve you. But at a certain point in our society, it seems like we're allowing the pessimism and the doomsday to overwhelm our discussion and dominate too much. And there really needs to be a little bit more balance where we actually are cognizant that there are billions of people on this planet and billions of incredibly intelligent, imaginative people. And even though you don't see them every day, they are working on incredible things. And the ability of humans to adapt 
and solve problems is incredible. And sometimes our solutions cause new problems, but human ingenuity is such that they will never be insurmountable, you know? So that's the position we took in the film, referencing Patrick Allett, a professor, a professor of history, who talked about how, you know, the cities at the turn of the century, uh, there was this huge problem of horse manure um, because the whole cities were going to fill up with horse manure. And then along comes, the, you know, the um, internal combustion engine. And then it sort of put the manure problem in the sky, you know, but at the same time enabled billions of people to travel and whole new industries to be invented. So the question is, we solve the horse manure problem. Why don't you think we can solve this one? Right. Right. And it can human sanitation as well, not just horse. Right. I mean, uh, that was right. a great, I thought that was a great analogy. Uh, it was one of my main takeaways from the documentary that, that, you know, Jane Jacobs and uh, Virginia Postrel and George Gilder have all written about this, that the real conflict is not the rich versus the poor Democrats, Republican, it's the past versus the future. Are we going to let the future unfold? you know, from these innovators and from these creators, because the status quo, obviously, a lot of people are invested in it, and they don't like change. And your documentary also does a great job with that, especially when it starts looking at the alternative foods, and the meat producers and the cattle producers. Yes. Uh, one of the things, uh, you know, our director said, uh, as we were making the film, Michael Ozias, is, uh, you know, he thought in the past that the opposite of, you know, love was hate, but uh, perhaps the opposite of love is fear, you know? And so when you, when you take a position that, uh, hey, we want to be creative and you want to let the imagination flow and you want to bring new ideas to solve a problem, you really need to be in a state of collaboration. Of course, there's competition in a market economy, but more often than not, uh, I think John Mackey made this point on Joe Rogan. It's really collaboration. That's really what you're largely doing. Uh, even your competitors are pushing you to, to grow and collaborate. So it's not really a dog eat dog world out there with a bunch of problems that are just going to mount and then human civilization will be in a post-apocalyptic movie. Uh, you know, it's really something where most people are good and trying and are capable of great things. And when you really internalize and believe that and choose to look at the world that way, then it will manifest. Right, right. And, and like Ed said, you focus, the documentary focuses on four areas, regenerative me uh, medicine, food, climate, and aquaculture, aqua basically. I'm just curious, how did you land on those four? Because I'm sure you had a much longer list. Yeah, well, the easy way, because there's, if you go Googling, you'll find solutions to everything. <laughs> so the easiest way to find it was to start with the problem. So we required gigantic problems. One of the stories that didn't make it into the documentary, but almost did, we just kind of ran out of time, was passenger drones, where, you know, you go to the top of a building, the passenger drone lands, it picks you up, there's a line there, and it takes you where you want to go, and it's about the size of uh, the W. And it, uh, you know, the technology works. Um, interestingly, they have a pilot in it, even though you don't need a pilot in it, but the pilot's there because they thought people would feel too afraid to get into it. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so for us, it really boiled down to, um, you know, global warming and ocean acidification 
are huge, huge, huge issues. Um, and uh, so long as there are more people on the planet, and then there's going to be change that human beings naturally do to the environment. And so we want to have some measure of control over those things, not just sort of take the position that we need to stop everything. You know, just stop it with the oil, stop it with the plastic, stop it with this. It's, it's more, well, we can't stop it because we need it. We depend on it for all of these people to remain alive and flourish. Um, so what we need to do is figure out a way to, you know, uh, gain control over these problems with new innovative solutions. And so uh, those were two big ones. And then we wanted to do something in healthcare uh, because that's a kind of, that's a very thorny issue and it's hard to find a way in. Um, but for us, the cost uh, and the skyrocketing cost was a great way in. And then when we found Dr. Apollo's research, you know, we not only marveled at the idea that you can 3D print a kidney and end the 122,000 person in America organ wait list. It's, you don't need to have a market of all these drugs and this enormous testing that are really just treating conditions and not curing them. And so the idea that you can print organs that are cancer resistant, or it's your organ, but it doesn't have the cancer in it anymore, or, you know, any number of genetic issues can be corrected by coming in and 3D printing your organ, not testing millions and millions of people, um, your organ, it just seemed like it would completely upend healthcare and make it really affordable for everyone. And so that was a key factor there. Um, I think I always forget one of them. With the meat, we were fascinated, similar technology, you know, this idea that you can print a fake. Um, but the, the thing about the meat that we found so fascinating is how the problems all go together. You know, there's runoff of the fertilizer and the waste into the river, which impacts the ocean. There are, you know, the flatulence or whatever, or the cost of, you know, the, 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 the expenditure of carbon in the tractors that are using up two thirds of our arable land to feed these animals. Pretty trippy when you think, wow, we've got all this land back now and we don't have any animal runoff. Like what happens to the Great Plains in these places in the world when we don't need to grow crops there to feed animals? Pretty, pretty amazing. Uh, but we landed on the stories because of the problem. Yeah, oh, that's great. I, I mean, the, the, the drug one was fascinating. The kid that you profile who got the new bladder and he said he was one out of 10 that has, yeah. has had that uh, in 18 years. Is that right? It's been right. years since he got that bladder. Um, wow. That, yeah. And the printing of the year that blew me away. And the other thing, and you talked with Ed about this, you know, who, which regulatory agency has jurisdiction, but the FDA is great with, you know, food, cosmetics and drugs. I mean, those are mass market, but all these organs, th these are bespoke. So who's, who's got regulatory control. And if it was the FDA, are they really set up for it? Those are fascinating issues to contemplate. It is. And unfortunately, they are not set up for it. Because what we learned is they just sort of said, well, you have a plastic resin that the organ grows on top of and then eats. And so that's non-biological. And then you have a biological element. 
so rather than in and also you can't test like all other drugs so rather than developing something that's just for you that makes sense we're going to make you do all of it so they have to do device regulations they have to do the biologics regulations um you know to prove the product and uh that takes an enormous amount of capital and so it's not necessarily i don't know what dr atala and you know julie would say but personally i didn't really get the impression that this was due to human safety it seemed like it was due to checking boxes and that if they really developed a regulatory portfolio about safety it would look a heck of a lot different than what they're doing right now Right, right. Well, I, I, I remember when I did watch the uh, documentary the first time about three months ago, I remember talking with Ed and said, the biggest oxymoron I, I learned or got from the documentary was the term regulatory science. I mean, anytime Richard Feynman, didn't Richard Feynman say, Ed, anytime you have to qualify science, it's, it's not science. I mean, that, that and, and of course, the definition she gave for what that meant. I just find it just also reminded me of Feynman's line that science is the belief in the ignorance of experts. <laughs> <laughs> well, we found that video personally pretty creepy. And so we decided it definitely had to go in. <laughs> yeah. Oh, good. Good. I'm glad you did. Cause that, that was just r really strange. Uh, it, it, and I, I totally agree with what Ed said too. I mean, the way you, the way it started when I first watched it and, and you were quoting all these governmental officials and I thought, Oh geez, it's going to be one-sided, you know, and then all of a sudden you have all these economists and all these different think tank people that we recognize it's like, yeah, this is, but it's really well balanced. I mean, it, it's, uh, said throughout the documentary that there is a need for regulation. Sometimes regulation can spur innovation. Do you do you have a personal opinion on where you come down between command and control regulation and performance-based regulation? Because I see a big difference between those two. Yeah, well, I think you hit the nail on the head. Command and control I see as an artifact of early industrial economies, and uh, it doesn't work. Uh, shouldn't be done, harms competition, pick certain products over others. And uh, in general, uh, it's a bad solution. Uh, you know, something like you don't think of property rights as a form of regulation, but in fact it is. Right. And uh, yeah, so I think performance-based property rights, things that come out of tradition and natural common law are generally much better than command right. and control. Yeah, we think reputation would be probably on that list as well, right? Reputation, oh, yeah. people defending their reputation. Well, Patrick, this is awesome and, and really great job on the documentary. I mean, it's thoroughly enjoyable. So we will definitely link to it in the show notes and where you can get it. And folks, we'd like to remind you, if you want to contact Ed or me, send us an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Check out patreon.com slash tsoe so you can get our bonus content and bonus shows. And the Patreon channel is now sponsored by 90 Minds. Uh, get ahead, hire a mind. Check them out at 90minds.com. And now a word from our sponsors. Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. 
These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever listened to an online radio show that changed your life? I'm required to say that I have. Have you ever stopped listening to an online radio show because the commercials were mind-numbingly repetitive? Of course you haven't because you're here right now. Look, you don't have to listen to me anymore. There's a commercial-free version of this show, and it only costs $10 a month. And for $15 a month, you get no commercials plus bonus content. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE, subscribe now, and be free. You're worth it. This is the Voice America Influencers Channel. Be inspired. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. And we are back with Patrick Reasonover. The film is They Say It Can't Be Done. And uh, we will post the show note. It is they say it can't be done dot com where you can go, go to that on the Web. But then also there's some screenings list and, and, and take a look at that. Patrick, I want to ask you straight up. Did you taste the alternative meat? I did. And it is delicious. <laughs> OK, <laughs> even more delicious is this company is pretty amazing. So they have uh, a guy in the film, Ui, which you spend some time with down in the seed library because they've funded him to go all over the world and collect all manner of plants to see what is actually best to feed the animal cells when they're growing in the amniotic fluids they've developed. Um, and uh, they found that mung bean as a protein uh, is, you know, has a lot of qualities to it that make it similar to eggs. And so they made this mung bean ice cream, which probably sounds disgusting, you know, I guess just phonetically, but it was, <laughs> incredible incredibly good yes and the meats the meat just tastes like meat honestly i couldn't really tell much of a difference um they say that there is a difference um because in the lab they control all the input so it's not like the chicken wanders around and eats whatever it wants and maybe it gets into some nasty weeds uh you know they control all the input so yeah texture everything delicious Amazing. Yeah. So, and, and it did, did, did you have any um, hesitancy in tasting it? Was there a little bit of like, wait, this is weird or no? I, I didn't. I was didn't. You know, at the time the, because of regulations, we didn't know whether we were going to be able to eat it. Oh, you know, okay. When we first did our scout, they told us you're probably not going to be able to eat it, but then we got to do it. So we were all incredibly excited. Everyone on the film team, which is about, you know, about, 12 people all ate it. <laughs> Heck yeah, we ate it. <laughs> Great. No, that I, I really uh, am looking forward to that, making making it out uh, to an actual product to the market. And one of the things I, that your film really brings out, and Ron have talked and I have talked about this on previous show, is how often incumbents in the industry are behind the regulation. And 
Big businesses actually love regulation. (laughs) There's a really misperception out there. And with the way it manifested itself in this particular group for the the just company is that the meat growers or the, the meat producers wanted to find meat as harvested from animal flesh, even though chemically the stuff that just is producing is the same. To me, it's the absolute inverse of like the transubstantiation in the body of Christ. It's like the absolute, it's the opposite of that. <laughs> so it's yeah, a weird thing. So talk a little bit about that, 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 that big businesses or regulations are often r- done by the incumbents. Yeah, I think everyone has emotional attachments. And sometimes they're subconscious and you want to defend it when something comes up. And so naturally, I mean, if you're a vegan, some vegans that we talked to uh, hated this product because they were sort of just come hell or high water. I'm not going to eat meat, even if it doesn't actually negatively impact an animal at all. Um, If you're a cattle or beef producer, you maybe look at this and see this as a threat. You know, nominally the cowboy and or the beef producers are kind of cowboy, you know, quintessential American, no regulation, let us do what we want, you know. Um, but as soon as it starts to threaten them and their livelihood with an innovation, rather than step up and innovate, they're going to go to the state and they're going to try to use the regulatory apparatus and their relationships and their money and lobby to prevent the new entrant from coming on board. So you have those guys, and uh, I think you see this in literally every industry. They buddy up with the regulations, corporations do, like current landed interests, if you will. And then they want to write the rules to ensure they don't have to face competition in the future. And I don't think it's necessarily nefarious when the regulators are working with them, because, you know, regulators are not market entrants. They don't know what's the most cutting edge thing. They have to go to industry to hear what's happening. And so you really have a perverse incentives going on. And so you have, you know, and it happens in the technology sector with Google and Apple and all, all of these big companies, you know, tend to take, you know, they tend to have a potential to go in this direction. I'll take Tyson food, for example, is an investor in just. So Tyson didn't take the position that we need to lobby and call this not meat they looked at it and said, we have a global distribution network. This innovation can decrease the cost and increase the quality of the product. So we want to work with them to bring this product to everyone faster. Uh, You know, so they saw the collaborative opportunity. But pretty much in any of these stories, if you scratch the surface, you find an interest that doesn't want the new thing to be there. Yeah, it was brought up briefly by one of the regulators, I think, the the Bootlegger Baptist Coalition, which Ron and I have talked about. That's always very interesting to figure out who's the bootlegger and who's the Baptist in in the different spot. Um, I wanted to turn over a little bit over to the the regenerative medicine uh, piece because I, you know, 3D printing of organs. You talked about that with Ron. Absolutely amazing. Uh, But I think we saw a little bit of this with regard to the COVID-19 vaccines, the same kind of regulatory problem with the FDA that they're, they're not being set up for it. We have a vaccine, which is different from, I understand, high blood pressure medication. Got to test that, make sure it's safe. Then does it actually reduce high blood pressure? Sure. But if you're reducing a, if you're, if you're producing a vaccine, test it, make sure it's safe, then get it out there. Tell those people, hey, continue to social distance. We'll compare you to people who are not vaccinated at all. And if it goes down, well, we know that the vaccine is effective, right? So that we can, we can do this a lot quicker by what they call, I guess, challenge trials 
right? And and I think that would be much more effective. So, but talk a, a little bit. You guys said you have a comment or, around that. What where where what would be helpful there? Well, you hear this was so fast. Yeah. Well, how fast is relative? It's a relative <laughs> measure because it's a speed. You know, so it may be fast compared with what they typically do, but we don't know that that's the appropriate speed, you know, at all. So it could be that this was a perfectly normal speed, uh, you know, that uh, so so it's the idea that, well, I don't know, it was faster than they did in the past. I mean, you're not suspicious of your cell phone because it's faster than the old one. You know, uh, you, you don't like suddenly think that they just jury rigged the thing together. Uh, you improve and develop new things and we expect it to be faster. So, um, yeah, I find it odd that, you know, you, you kind of have this knee jerk pessimism. Well, it's always taken seven years and a billion dollars to make a drug. I don't believe in drugs that don't take seven years and cost a billion dollars. You know, I'm scared of it. Uh, you know, I mean, certainly there are risks. Uh, to life and to product, but without risk, there's no advancement and reward. And so, yeah, I think when you look at something like the organs or any of these innovative technologies and you're a regulator, um, when thousands or tens of thousands die and millions are saved, the only thing the newspapers write about is the thousands that die, mm-hmm. not the millions that are saved. And so that's, you know, not to be callous about those who suffer death or, or you know, disfiguration or, you know, terrible outcomes um, in life. Uh, but at the same time, when you're a regulator, you really must think about the whole. And when you think about the whole, you're making decisions for everyone. And, uh, and so you really have to look at it, you know, from a cost benefit analysis and see what is best for everybody. And, um, and then our, in our current system, you just don't hear anyone talk about the people who died because they, across the last seven years, because they didn't get the heart medication that took that long to be approved. Right. The, the seen versus the unseen. Yeah. And how absurd is it that, that it, we're still not, it's still not technically approved. It, uh, the, the vaccines, right there. It's on, there's only a temporary <laughs> approval. It's like, what? By the time yeah. you get around to actual approval, it'll be completely gone. <laughs> I mean, just... uh, yeah. Well, the other thing is, uh, I think this confluence of innovation, you know, so for instance, let's say we had a very advanced uh, regulatory policy when it came to this just foods or other, you know, cell based, you know, meat producers. Well, then the amount of, I mean, if you're going with a theory that the, the virus came from animal human contact, well, there's a lot of animal human contact. If we have a food source that doesn't involve slaughtering all of these animals to eat, then the chances that there are viruses that are going to jump from animals to humans are much lower. So you don't just food didn't set out to prevent coronavirus in the future, but they will. I say, yeah, that's a, another ancillary benefit. That's that's wild. Yeah, we we had uh, Ronald Bailey on the show, and and he he I I think this is the first time he actually said it publicly. And of course, Reason Magazine has just come out with a cover story on this that this might be the last pandemic because of the messenger RNA technology that was developed, and they've been pretty successful with uh, AIDS as well. So cool yeah, stuff. Well, incredible. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, I only have uh, two more minutes with you, and uh, I wanted to ask you one more question about the the Catalina Sea Ranch. Um, as as I mentioned, I, I, another thing from a regulatory perspective, the the woman from the company says, "Well, the problem is is that testing the uh, the requirement testing was done for a naturally recurring herd. I don't know if it's herd proper, if that's the proper of, of mussels, whatever the, right. the group of mussels is called, over a naturally recurring herd, which takes place over a much much greater area than what how they grow them. So." It, and it sounded like the regulators just they just threw up their hands and gave up. Well, we don't know what to do. So, yeah, well, you can't sell your product. Is that what happened to them? Um, yeah, uh, they <laughs> basically just said, well, you have to follow the regulations uh, of, that were previously written for these harvesting models where the muscles were way far apart, even though Catalina Sea Ranch, as you see in the movie, basically just extend ropes. In the middle of the sea, they attach muscles to it. The muscles grow. The ropes are like 20, 40 feet apart. So the idea that you would be testing each of the ropes is absurd because they would, they're all in the same area. That's not how it is when it's naturally occurring. So you would think that the regulators would have said, oh, well, this is a completely new model. This is different. Let's apply the principles behind those regulations to you, not the literal, uh, you know, reading of them. And so, yeah, that ultimately raised the regulatory cost so high that business went into bankruptcy. And so um, while they, uh, you know, are trying to move out of bankruptcy with new owners and a new model, um, you know, regulation costs that business. So when you watch the film, you'll see that the seaweed guys are still going. Um, They have a lot of really cool products and things they're doing. Uh, mm-hmm. But just I'll treat this as a bit of an update. Uh, so we uh, Klaus's technology was licensed by a company in Europe. So they're deploying the carbon capture technology. Mm-hmm. The seaweed guys have moved international and are harvesting kelp in, you know, um, Scotland, Argentina, other parts of the world that are not America. And uh, Just Food was approved for operations in Singapore. So they're moving there. Really? That's great. That's well, it's bad for us. Good for them. I'm glad, glad to hear that. So, well, we uh, are up against our last break here. Thank you so much, Patrick. Ron's going to take you the rest of the way. Really appreciate you appearing today, but remind our listeners that they can contact us by sh- sending that email to AskTSOE. Also, ratethispodcast.com slash TSOE to obviously rate this podcast. But right now, a word from our sponsor and my employer, Sage. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. 
Have you ever been so annoyed by a commercial for a $5 ebook that you were willing to pay $10 to never hear it again? I sure have. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. Over the last several years, you've come to hate me, and I hate me too. By now, you know that for $5, you can get a copy of Ron and Ed's book. What you might not know is for twice that much every month for forever, you can stop hearing me plug Ron and Ed's book, which totally makes sense, like the Diamond Water Paradox. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe today. Please, for the love of God, make it stop! We're tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Welcome back, everybody. We're here with Patrick Reasonover, the producer of They Say It Can't Be Done. And Patrick, on the climate change aspect, the taking the CO2 out of the atmosphere that that was just really awesome. I this whole prospect of geoengineering. Are you optimistic that we'll solve the climate challenge with innovation and technology? One hundred percent. I mean, I believe that we will go and build structures in space and go to Mars and terraform it. Uh, you know, I believe that is the trajectory of humanity and. Uh, that's what is going to happen. And one of those steps is going to be gaining control over the climate, uh, doubtless. Um, and, uh, you know, the one thing that I thought was so fascinating about this, not only that it would solve the, the, you know, the idea of atmospheric carbon for good, because kind of, you might say, well, if we're going into an ice age, we can make more carbon. If we're going into a hot period, we can take the carbon out. If there is a crazy volcanic uh, sequence or uh, asteroid strike and there's too much carbon, we have a solution, you know, maybe not designed for that, but we would just be at the behest of nature, you know, without that. And so the idea with Klaus's technology where they found this particular chemical resin, uh, you know, petrochemical, I believe, that, uh, you know, is gets wet and then as it dries, carbon bonds to it, um, was, is an incredible thing. Like I think he says in the film, uh, when I discovered this, I did the calculations 20 times because I couldn't believe that it would work. And, um, yeah. And so he describes it as like, uh, you know, lighter than an air flight, uh, or heavier, heavier than air flight, you know, the plane. It's like right. you look at it and intuitively you don't think it can be done. And then, uh, and then suddenly, you know, you find a way. And so, yeah, I, I, I think there was an interesting one, right? Because sky is a big tragedy of the commons. No one owns it. So then when people dump into the tragedy of common, uh, into the, into the commons, that's, that's where the tragedy comes from. And, uh, the way you get around that with land is their property rights. Uh, because then people have an incentive to take care of their land and not just dump onto it. And so um, the regulators really are only, uh, they only have the ability to follow legislative acts where they can limit emissions. Uh, now they may know that a carbon tax or putting a price on carbon, which is basically a form of property rights, is the way 
to, you know, actually regulate the amount of carbon in the atmosphere and to increase it or decrease it. Um, but they are not empowered to just roll that out. Um, and so I think that, you know, at EPA, the folks that we talked to, Obama administration, as well as Trump, sort of knew that this is a solution. You have Susan Dudley in the film. Um, you know, they, they, you know, there is, there's, there's pretty broad understanding that this would be what would be needed. Now, as one, as Peter Van Doren says in the film is from Cato, well, you know, this could get very messy, uh, but it's already very messy (laughs) right now. And so, um, yeah, so really it would be Klaus's, Klaus's technology doesn't really work unless you have a different market-based regulatory system as opposed to the command and control emission system. Right. And, you know, it's those types of innovations that make me think about you. You have a very small segment in the film about um, the, the the losses from companies like Solyndra. I think there was 12 others or 11 others that lost a total of six and a half billion dollars. It made me thought think of George Gilder's famous line that the, you know, the dog is the politician's best friend. If, if the government's going to pick winners and losers, it's always going to pick the past. It's never going to fund the entrepreneur with the crazy idea of sucking carp CO2 out of the air atmosphere. Um, and I just, I just wonder about the technology, how much more we would have, how much more innovation we would have if the government wasn't subsidizing these, these relics, basically. Yeah, that's right. The government is not really in a position to pick the technology, and I think they know it because they don't know what's going to work. And the penalty of them doing it would maybe mean that we all had Betamax instead of VHS, you know, right. by horse. <laughs> uh, and so, or we all rode horses because they banned the cars. Uh, you know, they don't know what technology is best. So that's like why we have open competition on the market to see what is going to be the best way to solve the problem. And so when they pick winners and losers, they prevent us from seeing who the winner should be. And um, in addition to wasting a lot of money, uh, you don't just waste the money. Those were resources that could have gone into technologies that would have worked exactly like you just said, like the carbon capture. Um, interestingly, when we talk to a lot of environmentalists, and there maybe their tune is changing on this, and also when we talk to a lot of um, you know oil refining, you know petrochemical industries, they all hated carbon capture when we were doing this documentary. I think that the thing is. Now, a couple of years after literal production, this is changing a little bit. But, you know, the environmentalists just pretty much were against any fossil fuel thing at all. They didn't care if it actually solved the problem or not. They just don't like it. And so the idea that we could have carbon capture, where nominally, if the carbon capture gets more efficient, we could produce even more carbon, uh, then, uh, you know, that's a real problem because they sort of have a presumption that I just don't like the carbon. And then I think that, um, you know, you saw, you saw another emotional attachment on the other side. Well, we don't want a price on carbon. Why? Well, I guess because you like dumping it in the sky. Uh, you, you know, that's, right. what, that's, that's why. So, yeah, when it came to, comes to left and right on these things, often you just find when there's a reason for the right to protect its interests, it will try to use the state to do command and control regulations to protect its interests. When the left sees a reason to do it, they will do it also. Right. Right. You know, uh, on top of the, you know, don't bet against uh, 
human ingenuity. I also thought one of the takeaways that your documentary made me think of was, you know, Hayek said the mind can't see its own advance. And just the, you know, if you would have said to a regulator, well, what about Uber? You know, well, you're not supposed to take rides from strangers, right? It sounds the whole thing of Uber and Airbnb even sounds so counterintuitive. But this thing between permissionless innovation and the precautionary principle, as Adam Thierer kind of explained, it's on a spectrum. I, I just, and I feel like we've been living under the precautionary principle for the last year with this COVID thing. Um, are you are you optimistic that we can go back to the permissionless innovation side? I I think that the forces that impact the optimism pessimism uh, or the precautionary principle versus the permissionless innovation are quite complex, and so I can really only comment from from my standpoint. I think that filmmakers and people in media have done a terrible job of emphasizing and telling the optimistic, positive innovation story um, and have generally taken the easy way out to set up an apocalyptic future, to take capitalist business people as bad guys who are just after profit uh, and, and, and then, and then that maybe not intentionally, but it, it then refocuses our culture with these big meta themes. And, you know, what we tried to do with this film is not only follow these questions and see how these innovation and regulation are connected, but to really give an honest portrayal of where we're at. And where we're at is not a doomsday scenario. It is the most incredible scenario that has ever existed in, uh, you know, human civilization. And so the idea that we would be pessimistic now, with having any cognizance of the middle ages and the past is crazy. It's crazy. Yeah. Uh, well, you're the exception to that rule, Patrick. It's a great job and it's got a fantastic message and we'll do everything we can here to promote it. So thank you so much for appearing on the soul of enterprise. Stay with us for a minute as we go through a live close. Ed, what's, what do we have next week? Next week, as we make our way through the rest of the Reagan speechwriting team, <laughs> we have the top dog, Tony Dolan. Awesome. Looking forward to it. See you in 167 hours. <laughs> This has been the Soul of Enterprise, Business in the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage, transforming the way people think and work so their organizations can thrive. Join us next week on Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern. That's noon Pacific. And in the meantime, please do visit us on the web at www.thesoulofenterprise.com. 